0: Hello and welcome to the Aurora Energy podcast. What you're about to hear was recorded at the 2019 Aurora Battery Storage and Flexibility Conference. It's grown to be one of the largest events of its kind in Europe, attracting hundreds of participants to hear original analysis from Aurora, as well as the thoughts of leading figures from industry, finance and policy. If you check out our podcast feed, you'll see that there's already a review of the day's events available for you to download, but this is one in a number of episodes where so we're going to go into a bit more depth. A big attraction of Aurora's conferences are the one-to-one interviews, where significant figures of the industry are questioned by a member of the Aurora team. In this instance, Alan Whitehead, MP, the Shadow Energy and Climate Change Minister, was in the spotlight. He was interviewed by Richard Howard, Aurora's research director. What I was particularly keen um,
1: to talk to Alan about um, was really around Labour's position on net zero, uh, what that means for the future of the energy system, and specifically for the requirement for flexibility, and um, and a few other things we'll, we'll get into the direction of of energy policy as well, and we could we could talk about the proposals around um, nationalisation um, as well. Uh, we have quite a wide spectrum of people from across the industry who I'm sure are probably uh, interested to, to learn about that. We've been talking a lot today about net zero and what, what that means. I think it'd be helpful for people in the room uh, to get your perspective on, on exactly how you define Labour's official uh, position on net zero and specifically what I'm getting at or driving towards is we heard a lot from the conference um, around net zero and some of the composites that came out with extremely ambitious, I'm talking about net zero by 2030, but is this is this official Labour policy?
2: The short answer, Richard, is no. Uh, the, uh, the way uh, conference works as far as the Labour Party is concerned, I think students of uh, the Labour Party conferences will be well aware of this, is conference proceeds on uh, collecting together a series of motions, from local parties, those are composited in together. Uh, They come in front of conference floor uh, in terms of a composite motion, which is sometimes a small version of war and peace in its own right. Uh, And sometimes several composites will be taken and sometimes all those composites will be agreed and sometimes some of the things in those composites don't necessarily agree with things in other composites, all of which have been agreed. So it's, it's essentially something that comes before conference as an aspiration that uh, the conference would like to see. Well, that is then a long way from being winnowed down into a firm, researched, thought-out, finally decided policy. Now, that, to some extent, goes through the party national policy forums which meet regularly and produce reports to conference in a much greater depth and also then there's the process that leads to the Labour Party manifesto uh, at the end of all this process where all these ideas together with all the research that's gone into them are narrowed down into a corpus of policy which is then agreed nationally by the party and then goes forward as the manifesto so What happened at this party conference is that, uh, firstly, there was a strong adherence to the imperative of getting to net zero as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. And uh, we know that uh, Parliament has now uh, agreed, uh, strongly supported by Labour, and indeed um, advocated by Labour for a long period, to move from the original target of 80% by 2050, reduction from 1990 level to net zero uh, target by 2050. Uh, Labour quite clearly wants to move to net zero well before that date. Uh, Now, of course, that means uh, a suite of policies, which actually we've been uh, developing over a period of time, Uh, firstly to get us to the targets on the the fourth and fifth carbon budget which uh, as you all know Richard we're well short of at the moment in terms of where government policy is going but then secondly to go well beyond those targets to get us into net zero realms and that involves a lot of big numbers and a lot of serious policy initiatives which we can talk about all afternoon if you like but uh, that's where we are as far as Uh, Labour is concerned, but uh, we are fully committed to that net zero target, fully committed to getting to that net zero target earlier than 2050, and fully committed to understanding what that means in terms of policies for putting carbon back in the ground and things like that, which are new issues as far as net zero as opposed to 80% are concerned. So uh, I suppose to put a different twist on that, the the
1: CCC has come out with the I can't remember, 400 pages of analysis. that, And their their conclusion seems to be that net zero by 2050 is, I think they put it as towards the, the upper end of feasibility. They say it's feasible by 2050, but it's also not easy. It's not a slam dunk. So I suppose getting to net zero by 2030 sounds is obviously accelerating what needs to be done. It means phasing out all of the c- conventional vehicles and boilers we have in a 10 roughly 10-year period. Do you, do you personally think that 2030 is feasible? And if so, what do you say to the CCC who, who implicitly think it's not?
2: What I think is feasible and indeed an imperative is that actually, and this follows actually the um, IPCC uh, reporting uh, just a little while ago, which essentially said, uh, really, you've got 12 years to get into place the things that will irreversibly and unstoppably reduce carbon to that net zero target within the fastest possible time. So what I think uh, is feasible is by that time, by the early 2030s, we will have in place firstly a, a, a very low carbon economy. But secondly, in place, those things that will inevitably at that point lead us to a net zero economy. So in a sense, that target will have been reached. But not in terms of adding everything up and saying in 2030, everything will be exactly net zero in terms of numbers. What should be in place by 2030 is what it is is going to make sure that net zero follows as quickly as possible thereafter. And to give you one little example, uh, one of the key things that we're going to have to do over the next period to get to net zero is plant an inordinate number of trees. Uh, I've done a few calculations here, a while away, a particularly sad weekend. Um, and uh, we need, actually, 2.4 billion trees to be planted across the UK to get the afforestation level of the UK back to what it was about 200 years ago, so go from the present 13% afforestation cover to about 20% across the UK. That in itself sequesters uh, about uh, 20 megatons of carbon for, on a permanent basis. However, one may have spotted that trees take some time to grow. Yes. So you won't have sequestered all that carbon by 2030 because the trees will still be growing. But so long as you've got a program that they're in the ground, they're growing, you're looking after them, you're making sure that the squirrels and the deer don't eat them, and you get there, then that's your policy sorted out.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad we've cleared up Labour's policy on squirrels at the same time. Yeah, we quite like squirrels. Okay. But not brilliant. that much. Particularly the red ones. Yeah. Um, no, in all, in all seriousness, I take your point, which is uh, you, so to characterise it a different way, the way you put it, it, it's almost like if we've put in place the things that we know we need to do and particularly the things that take a, have a long lead time like planting trees also like developing a ccs project which seems to take um, a long time or a nuclear power station if we've if we put if we start to put those things in place will be feeling a lot better about ourselves in 2030 if a lot of those things in place even if we haven't quite hit zero we we could be a long a long way down that road that sort of is that a fair characterization
2: yeah so long as we know it is going to happen and that means obviously uh, commissioning all, all sorts of uh, processes uh, which get us to those numbers and get us to those numbers as quickly as possible and are in process of getting us to those numbers uh, at the earliest possible stage. So, uh, again, another for example, uh, we think uh, it will be necessary to almost completely decarbonize energy systems by the early 2030s and that will entail putting into place something like a five-fold increase in offshore, a trebling of solar, both field and domestic, uh, a doubling of onshore. That will get you to about an 85 to 90% decarbonisation of the power sector by the early 2030s. Now, it won't, it won't be a final point because that will be a developing process, but that's the sort of ambition we need to commit ourselves to and have the resources and the actions undertaken to succeed in doing by that date in order to get those irreversible actions underway.
1: So to kind of further triangulate on all of this, what do you say to the people within the Labour caucus but also outside? So maybe, I don't know whether you encountered the Extinction Rebellion on your way here, but what do you say to the people who are calling for action even faster than that. The Extinction Rebellion are calling for net zero by 2025. Are you, do, you, do you back that as, a, as an idea, or, or on the flip side, put it, put it provocatively, as Boris did, do you deem them to be uncooperative crusties in hemp-smelling bivouacs,
2: Alan? No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't characterise Boris Johnson's father uh, in that way. um, and, um Sorry, that was a cheap shot. Um, I would uh, say of Extinction Rebellion that they are actually a tremendous weapon of conscience as far as the trajectory that we are on. And indeed, the climate strikers are uh, in the same position. And what they are saying, I think, is actually outriding on those dates in order to keep the rest of us absolutely with our noses to the grindstone on all this. Now, there are certain things, I think, even in terms of putting things in place, which will irreversibly get you to that position, which you can't do by 2025. You can, for example, also keep giving examples here, you can, uh, I think, uh, end the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by about 2030 rather than 2040, as is the suggestion at the moment, even with some get-outs. But that is then within the cycle of ownership and sale and, and, and scrappage of a number of vehicles. 2025 isn't. So you've got to actually look at how you can get those things in place by those times, which allow the economy to work in a reasonable manner, but actually create that carbon transition very rapidly in the process. And if, for example, we achieved uh, bringing the end of the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles by uh, early 2030s, 2030, then you can actually put a number to that in terms of your net zero target. That would save long term about 96 to 100 megatons of carbon. And actually, in itself, is the difference between achieving and not achieving the fifth carbon budget. Sure. So that's where you need to start penciling the figures in once you know you've got the issues in place.
1: So in a sense, the call for 2025 is is partly in your view about kind of, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but about shifting this Overton window to make 2030 or 2040, to, to put pressure on, on politicians such as yourselves and others to, to push harder, push as hard as is. is Feasible and conceivably. Yeah,
2: I mean, we absolutely need to push A, harder and B, as hard as we can because we really are in a climate emergency and we really are in circumstances where the world is burning and uh, pushing less hard than you absolutely need to is a dereliction of an understanding of that's where we are but the pushing as hard as you can clearly needs to be couched in an organised way and a way in which actually the, the best results of your pushing as hard as you can is going to achieve overall the best permanent outcome. Because the other thing we need to remember, of course, is that uh, it isn't the case if we get to net zero by 2035, 2040, 2050, we can all say, yippee, we're now at net zero, we can now relax. It's got to continue at net zero thereafter. The, the mechanisms need to be in place to keep that low carbon economy going well on a permanent basis, and that will largely be a factor of how well you have set up those devices to get to net carbon in the first place.
1: That's an excellent sort of segue into the next topic I wanted to discuss, which is really more not about what we're going, where we're going, but how we get there. And I suppose, uh, in a sense, to characterise the approach to date that we've had, we had a a pre-privatisation system that was very statist and and centrally organised we had a process of privatization that make it much more, made it mar- much more market-led. And we've actually sort of come some way back to the original one of, of, of more, some more intervention with the capacity market and the fits and the rocks and, and all the alphabet soup of, of things that we, we know and love in, in energy policy. But what, what would your version of this look like going forward? How, how would the state intervene or otherwise, what would the market be delivering in its own right?
2: Well, I think there's, there's and you started to characterize this, there's an interesting trajectory, I think, over quite a period of time, the last 50 years or so, uh, in terms of energy policy. Yes, uh, energy policy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was very statist. Uh, Then we had a period where energy policy became almost completely, albeit for a fairly brief period, completely non-statist. And the experience of the last 20 years or so is actually an increasing regulation and shaping and partnership in the energy field uh, between uh, state regulation, uh, private players, and in some instances non-private players. And, of course, there's been quite an interesting development indeed in offshore wind where um, Actually, national government is predominant in the development of offshore wind. It's just it's not our national government. It happens to be the national governments of Denmark, of Sweden, of Norway, um, who actually have, through their state investment arms, effectively, um, through Orsted and Vattenfall and and, uh, um, Equinor, um, invested quite rightly and very heavily in UK offshore wind. Uh, so we haven't actually got a pure market uh, arrangement as far as offshore wind is concerned, and never have. And so I see the, the, the future of energy in terms of the imperative that we've got to go far, very fast on the decarbonisation process of actually essentially throwing everything at the investment that's necessary to get us there whether that be state-led investment or private-led investment. And you've clearly then got to ensure that your investment is robust in terms of the relationship between the private sector that you're bringing in and what the state is doing in terms of either leading or participating in that investment itself. So Labour's recent uh, policy development on offshore wind itself is something that I think is going to be essential in terms of just in the light of what we've talked about, how much, how much offshore we're going to need uh, over the next period. We are going to need absolutely all hands to the pump. And I think having a UK state investment arm, which can actually take the initiative in getting together consortia for developing a number of wind farm platforms, is going to be a great boost to that level of investment we're going to need. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, everybody else who wants to come and invest in offshore wind in the UK can't do so. They can either do so in terms of those consortia or in terms of bidding for CFDs in the normal way. But there will be in place a substantial state investment arm capitalized to run into partnership with Various other private sector agencies and companies to get that total level of investment you're going to need to get that 50 gigawatts or so of wind deployed by 2040s.
1: So, just uh, my understanding is to <coughs> characterise it, this is a bit like the return of a green investment bank type of vehicle, where that body would be investing in these projects on a commercial on a commercial basis if
2: those companies want it, but yes. not, not yes, if they do yes, of course. This would be a state investment arm investing in projects that would make a profit. Yeah. That uh, one would want the uh, want the projects to make a profit because that is how the money is going to be returned. And part of the uh, the policy that's being developed is about where those profits might be put in terms of redeployment for other sources. So resources. So you've got to uh, envisage that. Obviously, these are profit-making investments which have to be financially robust. You probably have some benefit from a state investment arm in the way I've described uh, in terms of cost of capital and various other things. But they have to work well. They have to make a profit. They have to function. Uh, they have to be managed well uh, and all the other things that goes with a successful offshore industry.
1: But, and one final question because I, I see John's uh, pushing me on time. But it, so it's... The market will still, would the markets, market markets still exist as, as we know them, or do you see any fundamental changes across wholesale balancing capacity markets, the, the ancillaries and all that?
2: Well, if you ask me to um, predict exactly where that's going, given that we're, we're in a revolutionary change at the moment in terms of uh, balancing uh, markets, in terms of uh, what I think everyone's been discussing today at great length, in terms of what we do with inertia, uh, over the next period, in terms of the fundamental turnaround of uh, inputs to the system, you know the change around from what, 80 inputs 30 years ago to one and a half million inputs now, uh, what that means in terms of uh, grid visibility for the system, all those sort of things are undergoing a fundamental change and will clearly have to be uh, regulated and brought about by a change in market circumstances. And I think, uh, I frankly, uh, leaving all those changes just to the hope that somehow the market is gonna sort it all out, I think will be very imprudent uh, right this minute. And we need to have a framework in which those changes can be managed so that you actually, uh, not to put too fine a point in it, you've got a soft landing at the end. Your system is very differently regulated is com- comprises a very different mix uh, of energy, but nevertheless still works well in terms of the inertia that's in the system. The balancing systems that are necessary, um, and we've discussed on previous occasions, I think, uh, things such as the difference between the capacity market as it stands at the moment and, say, developing a strategic reserve system for how to um, balance the market uh, as far as demand and supply is concerned. Uh, There may be changes that have to be undertaken as far as that's concerned. There will be a whole lot of ancillary services which will come in in ways that we're not really fully um, comfortable with right this minute, but we need to integrate those into the system. I mean, it's interesting that the national grid, for example, is, I think, already beginning to think about inertia auctions. Um, Those are the sort of things that we're going to have to uh, develop over the period, and that will be, yes... Uh, undertaken on a market basis in terms of auctions and a level playing field for all concerned but will be undertaken on the basis of different forms of regulation to make sure that that change works in the best interests uh, of uh, the energy market as a whole.
0: Alan Whitehead the Shadow Energy and Climate Change Minister speaking to Aurora's Research Director Richard Howard. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Aurora Energy Podcast. Do look out for more of these in-depth episodes from the Aurora Battery Storage and Flexibility Conference. Just subscribe to our podcast feed on whatever platform you use to make sure you don't miss any. For now, though, it's goodbye.